Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Today's guest is the author of Existential Comics, Corey Moller. Many of you will be familiar with Existential Comics. Certainly anyone who's involved in philosophy Twitter will have seen them. They're a web series of comics that attempt to popularise philosophy through comedy. They tend to depict philosophers of different backgrounds arguing and interacting with each other, and they also provide textual descriptions of the jokes to help educate the readers. I really recommend these comics if you haven't already. They're genuinely one of the few, maybe one of the only good comedic takes on philosophy. Corey is also a pretty big online presence in terms of Twitter, so just one example of this he drew attention to Elon Musk, calling him, quote, the villain from Atlas Shrugged, and ended up getting into a pretty angry exchange with him during the SpaceX launch of a Falcon 9 rocket. So I encourage you to check out the series and to follow Existential Comics on Twitter if you don't already. For this series, we start out by talking about the role of comedy in politics and philosophy, and we move on to talk about the so-called intellectual dark web, and Corey gives a really strong criticism of many of the thinkers there. That'll be coming out next week. If you enjoy this conversation and this podcast, please do like us, follow us, subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, RSS, YouTube. And we have a great conversation like this coming out every single week. We've been going for about six months, so we've got over 30 conversations now. You can get the links to follow us as well as to share and check out all of those great past episodes at politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And yeah, without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you the first part of my conversation with Corey from Existential Comics. I'm joined by Corey from Existential Comics. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So I'm suspecting, I always ask people to introduce themselves at the beginning. If who follows you on Twitter, which is like everyone who I interact with on Twitter, is any method to go by, everyone will have already heard of Existential Comics. But why don't you just begin by telling us a little bit about that? Well, it's a philosophy comic, uh, basically just making jokes about smart people doing stupid things, mostly. And then on Twitter, you know, it's a mix of sort of philosophy jokes, jokes about existential despair and communist propaganda. Which I think undersells what's one of the better Twitter feeds out there on philosophy Twitter. Um, But you're not, you're like me, right? You're not a professional philosopher at all. You're just someone who found this interesting, got into it, and has gained a following by talking about it. Yeah, it's kind of weird. 
I never took any philosophy classes in college. I sort of read on my own. And then here I am, like one of the most popular people online in the domain. It's kind of bizarre. In terms of Twitter followers, arguably the most. I'm struggling to think of like an academic who would have anything in your stratosphere. But this isn't your full-time gig, right? Like you, you have a regular job and this is like your hobby. Yeah, that's right. I work in software. Ah, okay. That's cool. I know next to nothing about that, so I'll, I'll move yeah. on from that. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any software questions. Yeah, it's um, very boring. <laughs> but I mean, is this... Um, is this something like... Because I've, I've sort of thought, I'm not at the size where I could yet, but I've thought, would I want to make my living solely from doing the podcast? And I probably wouldn't. I kind of like having a day job and having that balance. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You're, are you, you're probably getting to the size where you could kind of make a living doing merch and sales and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I sort of could, but... I guess when you're working in software, the amount of money kind of has to be more. Like, if I had a... I guess if I had a, like, we're working at McDonald's or something, that I would have quit my job long ago. Right. It's harder to quit a kind of easy gig that makes a lot of money. <laughs> and I can easily do this on the side. So I don't know if I would want to or not. I probably would. It would probably be cool to just do this, but it's not a big deal either. Yeah. And I hire an artist now, so I don't have to do a lot of work. Oh, what? So it's like your original designs, but then they do the... Yeah. So like a year ago, I hired someone to draw it because I didn't, it was like too much work. So I kind of went the other direction instead of quitting my job. I kind of quit the comic almost like the, uh, the most hours is the art. So I outsource that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so let's talk about like comedy in general, because I'm struggling to think perhaps you can fill me in with some examples of other good comedic takes on philosophy. Cause obviously, and I think we're going to get into this, there's a whole load of comedic takes on politics and we can talk about whether they're useful or not, or even funny or not, but I'm struggling to think of anything else that makes philosophy funny, which is weird because smart people doing stupid things seems to sum up the history of philosophy pretty well. And that does seem like if you just look at like the lives and the quirks of philosophers yeah, from these ancient Greek ones walking into volcanoes to who is it Schopenheimer pushing a woman down a flight of stairs. These are not always yeah. normal people, um, but it doesn't seem like there's been much good work making it funny are you aware of anything other than yourself and why do you think that yeah is? not really i mean that's sort of why i started in some ways there's so many web comics and jokes about science and there's just nothing about philosophy i mean science is just much more popular you know like the, i'll never be as popular as these science comics but yeah there's just nothing there i mean there's dead philosophers in heaven was an old comic they kind of uh, never got too popular, and uh, I think they stopped making them before I started making mine. But there's not much there, and it's like, it is kind of funny, because philosophy is actually the easiest area. It's much easier than science to make jokes about. Because, for one, yeah, I think the philosophers in general are funnier biographically than most of the scientists, who tend to be more professional, kind of, I don't know. They are more colorful characters in general. And also the history goes back much further, like Aristotle and Plato. Are, you know, a lot of those Greek guys are funnier than the modern people. There's no 
science that far back, you're more restricted. But also, philosophy is much funnier than science because the ideas are much funnier. Like, people have such wacky ideas in philosophy because philosophers tend to be forced to take their idea to the logical extreme and end up accepting totally absurd ideas, right? Like, like Barclay, Bishop Barclay, was sort of forced to accept the idea that everything is just in your mind and there's no external reality at all. Now, this is already funny. I don't, you don't have to write <laughs> yeah. a joke. Just thinking that you believe this, to have someone believe this genuinely, or David Hume doesn't believe in causation, all you have to do to write a joke is just pretend that he actually believes this idea, which, of course, he can't in his day-to-day life, right? And, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of, like, even modern, like David Lewis or someone who doesn't believe, who believes that every possible world exists in reality, you know, stuff like that. It's just totally ridiculous, but he was forced into it to save a theory of truth, you know what I mean? He's like, I would rather believe that every possible world exists than kind of give up at being able to describe counterfactuals or something. Like, philosophers are bizarre in how they think. And so it's a much funnier discipline than almost any other uh, academic study because you just get these totally wacky ideas that are apparently genuinely believed. Yeah. and So it's a little mystery why there's not better jokes. I mean, I don't know. I think people are intimidated by philosophy and even the stuff we've just heard. They'd sort of be scared to do some of my favorite writings ever on philosophy or sort of what I think of as the, but that's just bullshit line of response. So with the um, Hume causation thing, I forget who wrote this, but someone said, your philosophy, sir, is like a small wooden rocking horse. It's perfectly legitimate to spend an hour or two swinging on it in your study. But if you attempted to ride it through the streets, your friends would rightly think you mad and have you committed. And, yeah. like, those sorts of smackdowns where people just go, but no. Those are yeah. the funny bits. But, but it's it, obviously stupid. But I so think it comes... Yeah, go ahead. It's kind of funny because I, I saw recently, like, David Hume wrote that about Bishop Barclay. He said, everybody reads that book and nobody can refute the argument. But at the same time, nobody's convinced. Right. That was his description of Bishop Barclay. And then he went and wrote an identical book where nobody can refute Hume, but nobody is convinced. Nobody has ever been convinced by Hume's. There's no such thing as causation. Basically, nobody's convinced. But we have we really struggle even more with Hume than Barclay, much more to refute his arguments. It's almost impossible. And that's kind of a funny situation where it's like the reason you're not convinced is not because there's any flaw in the argument, but because it's just too stupid to believe. (laughs) It's just too dumb. You're like, yeah, you got me. I can't point out a single flaw, but no, of course I don't believe it. It's dumb as hell. I'm not going to believe something that stupid. This isn't my area of philosophy, but just for people who maybe aren't tuning in, the Hume stuff is about how do you know... This is like, how do you know the next thing's going to happen? How do you know the sun's going to rise, other than that it always just has risen? And is that actually a good reason, and there's the whole billiards ball thing of, like, you don't actually know that one hitting into the next will make it move, yeah. right? You can't I, see the causation itself. So, like, you can see that a ball comes and then it hits the other ball and the other ball leaves, but you can't really see causation. Hmm. You just sort of assume there's kind of some kind of causation, and how do you prove it? So he says there's no such thing as causation, there's just constant conjunction. Things are kind of going on. 
And, and then, how do we know that tomorrow we're going to wake up and the billiard barrels are still going to behave the way they have in the past? And then well, the like, jokes, obviously they will. The right? jokes write themselves. Yeah, oh, the jokes write themselves. Which is actually why I don't make too many Hume jokes because they're too easy. I hardly do it at all. It's like the can't can't. Yeah, it's like. a little too easy to do. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess people are kind of intimidated by philosophy because wherever they're coming from, be it social sciences or natural, it kind of feels a bit different. And it's like, I guess you've got to pluck up the courage to just call bullshit, right? Yeah, I think like philosophy more than anything else is kind of in a funny situation in culture because people often make fun of it and say it's pointless, right? Mm. But at the same time, it feels like the most serious discipline. Mm. Like it's sort of the thing that controls the intellectual history of the world the most in some ways. Like philosophy is the central thing binding everything together. Yeah. But at the same time, in today's culture, everyone's like, oh, philosophy is pointless. We should just do science. So it's a weird position where people take it very seriously and not very seriously at the same time. Um, Before we do comedy and politics, can you? What, do you think there's a constructive role other than just sort of marveling at the absurdity of some of these characters and the seeming absurdity of some of these ideas? Do you think there's a constructive role for comedy in philosophy i mean i would say just based on our current conversation there is like sometimes there's a role to just be like but obviously this idea just doesn't jive with what we know is true even if we can't point to the thing and sometimes a joke is the best way to get there um do you think that is a constructive role or are we when we're making jokes in philosophy are we just sort of basking in some of the silliness of it yeah i'm not sure i mean Sort of like in maybe in the education of philosophy, there's a role certainly to make these jokes. Often people can understand things from jokes easier. Mm. Uh, as far as philosophy itself, it's hard to say. Like, would you write jokes in into the works, you know, mm. to really convince people? Maybe sometimes they do, uh, but uh, yeah, I think definitely there's a role in teaching philosophy, and even in my own comic. Like, obviously, I introduce a lot of people to philosophers that they've never heard of you know through I mean, the you've introduced me to a whole load like i can't claim to be super familiar with a lot of like the um existential stuff i have like, like the most cursory understanding probably from reading your work so i guess as a move in it's, it's interesting to note with with actual people in the history of political thought you kind of have like two schools like someone like machiavelli i find to be very witty and funny and he's obviously making jokes in there and then you've got yeah. someone like john rawls who complained he complained that rousseau was quote excessively eloquent like it's the opposite like you're, you're yeah. trying to be as dry as possible i don't i don't know which is better although you certainly prefer to read machiavelli yeah I guess it's hard to say. I mean, who wants to read John Rawls, right? I mean, fucking nobody. He was very influential, though, so... I mean, he was very influential. Um, I've, I've got a whole podcast with um, uh, Dr. Rupert Reed kind of trashing Rawls. Um, but it's... I, I don't think anyone on this earth has read Theory of Justice cover to cover. And you know it's no. a bad sign. And I really wish... It's like... I hate how philosophers take themselves so seriously. Yeah. Where what they do is they write these huge tomes for 10 other people to read. And what they don't do is write another 50 page thing for the popular audience. I think they should. It's like, 
for one, Rawls' ideas can be explained in 50 pages. Rawls' ideas can be ideas. explained in 50 words. In one page. Yeah, yeah. in one page. So why does he not write something like, okay, guys, here's the real deal? You know what yeah. I mean? And like, even at they the be- ought to do that. Even at the beginning of Theory of Justice, he gives you a reading guide and says, these are the bits you want to read. Yeah. So what the fuck is the rest of it doing in that? Yeah, you know? I wish they would all just write, like, okay, here's the real one. That you- Same thing like uh, Thomas Hobbes back in the day. Yeah. I had someone email me, like, because I had him in a comic, and he's like, oh, how do I get into this? How do I read it? I'm like, I don't even know if you should, you know? Yeah. I. This, this, <laughs> what are you going to do, read Leviathan? Like, this person who had never really, didn't know anything yeah. about philosophy, and they're like, oh, I want to, that sounded interesting. I'm like, I don't think you should read it. Maybe listen to a lecture or something. It's like, who's gonna, who's got the time to read that? Why doesn't he write something shorter you know like it's, it's the same thing with him he can explain those ideas you can explain that idea in 50 pages yeah and then and then it becomes light, this witty huge, dialogue, you know? huge game of what did hobbes really mean by this and if yeah. you're having to do that yeah. sort of work to even understand the basic ideas it's maybe a sign that they weren't communicated that well yeah i mean yeah. there's I'll, i will say I'd, and we'll move on to politics and comedy but i will say i'd sooner read Hobbes than Rawls in the same ways I'd probably sooner read I mean Marx is dense as shit right but there are bits in Marx that are quite powerful and the odd quote that actually is like well put together and it sticks in your head and like Hobbes there's bits of that like the nasty poor brutish and short and so on and um, the war of all against all there's nothing like that in Rawls as far as I (laughs) can tell Um, yeah and then you go to the other extreme with some of these 18th century thinkers, someone like Fourier or Saint-Simon or something, where instead of going through looking for the interesting bits, you're kind of like scanning for the same stuff and uh, the stuff that isn't yeah. absolutely like... And then humans will evolve a large and dexterous tail, which I think Fourier said at one point. <laughs> I don't know that much about that uh, hand, but yeah. Yeah, I did a history of socialism course at some point, and some of those early guys were were like they were they they were on a different uh, very, very imaginative, we can say. Um, but yeah, philosophy is a weird one. Let's let's remove it over to politics because philosophy and comedy is this incredibly niche thing, which is like. I mean, basically, pretty much just me, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But politics, politics, and co- comedy is like one of the primary means where we get our political argumentation from. Um, yeah. And we were talking online. You made a distinction be- between what you regard as like generally useless political comedy and good. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, and I think the, my best example is someone who is revered by a lot of people for doing good, smart. I guess you would call it left wing. I don't know. It's hard to even describe his positions, but that's George Carlin. And I would say it's just the worst kind of useless crap you can possibly get. And I, he should have stuck to regular jokes. I like his stand up for the most part. But his, if you're going to call this political, I would say it's just there's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, so. I agree with you, but I feel like I can just hear a thousand guys, and they will be yeah. guys, going, um, this is genius, this is like the, 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 the unmasking of authority, the unmasking of religion, how, how dare you say this about St. Carlin, explain yourself, sir. Yeah, 
And first of all, I would just say <laughs> the people who think he's a genius need to understand what <laughs> what a genius is. In order to be a genius, you have to have an idea. Right. George Carlin didn't have any ideas. He didn't even understand the world at all. There's no place where he makes any kind of political commentary that's remotely insightful. What does he what does he believe? Hmm. What does he even believe? Well, like you don't even authority know. is shit and they're full of yeah, shit. Yeah, authority is shit. If your entire genius can be summed up on a t-shirt for the Sex Pistols, you know, like this isn't political genius. Like literally anything that he said could be a punk rock t-shirt and you wouldn't even notice, you know, were the sex pistols geniuses. I don't think so. I don't think they understood the world very well either. They were pretty cool, but they weren't doing politics. You want, and you they want, certainly... you want me to make us even more hated? John Lennon, widely revered as a political genius. I don't know had anything yeah. super constructive to say other than what some did he vague, actually believe? vague you know, notion. Wouldn't of it be like nice a... if the world were better? Right? At least that's constructive. George Carlin doesn't even say that. Right. He doesn't even try to make the world better. He never says what the, a better world would look like or even encourage us to work for a better world. At least John Lennon would say, like, hey, let's try to make the world better. It's like, okay, that's very banal. It's like not saying anything. But at least you're trying to make the world better. George Carlin says, actively, basically encourages people, everything is shit, authority is shit, religion is shit, let's just smoke pot and do nothing. Right. That's not politics. Well, and if, it's a, a negative influence. I mean, it's... it's well, it's, I was going to say, if anything, it's actually... It is political in a sense, and it's the sort of politics that elites and the people running our society and profiting yeah. from it would like. I'm yeah, sure. it's ironic that his biggest thing is to sort of like... I don't want to use the word rebel, but like he hated the pe people in power or, oh, they're terrible... They're controlling everything, man. And his brand of comedy is exactly helpful to the same people that he's against. Do nothing against it. Don't organize, you know? Did he ever use the word unionize? You know what I mean? Like, don't organize against power. Don't vote. Don't I, do anything. I, I can't... I, I always want to not take political views personally and just try and take them off them on their merits. But the not voting thing bugs me. Even in America, where I will grant you that often both of the choices are lousy, it's like nothing would please the Koch brothers more than to have everyone who's angry at them sitting home doing nothing, smoking pot and not voting. Yeah. That, that is what they want at the end of the day. And I accept But also, I that. would say that they're not afraid of votes either. Like, mm. I don't think they would be too pissed if everybody voted. So right now we have like, what, 30% of people vote or something, 40%? Depending on the level, whether it's say state, 80 local. Say 80% voted. Say you 80% right. of people voted. Would the Koch brothers be worried? I don't know. They probably wouldn't be too happy about it because it would probably, those people maybe would skew a little more Democrat. What if 80% of people joined a union? I agree. Um, and it would be a big, it would radically alter society and it would destroy their power base which is to have these isolated people totally hopeless you know if 80 percent of people in america were in a union we would be living in a different society if 80 percent of people in america voted maybe maybe democrats would have a few more seats in congress 
Mm. So I don't think voting, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote, but that's not politics either. It's not the end of politics. No, no, I agree. And the way I I think there's a bit of confusion on both sides of this. So to use some very, very philosophical terms, necessary and sufficient, right? I do think people showing up to vote is necessary for social change. But what a lot of people will say is it's not sufficient. Well, yeah, I mean, both things can be true at once, right? And and also, though, the decline of unionization was somewhat a result of politics. That happened, what, in large part because Reagan won, right? Maybe yeah, if more people true. had voted. That, I mean, it's, it's complicated yeah. and it plays it's into itself. But I would just say you need both. You need organization like unions. You need protest movements. Yeah. And you do also need to vote. Like, I think any one of those bits by themselves would be kind of mute. Yeah. And... And so what is, to tie it back to yeah, comedy, yeah. what is the role of George Carlin in any of this? He's discouraging you to vote. He's discouraging you to vote. He's discouraging you to organize. He's discouraging you to protest. And this is the last one that I would say he's discouraging you to read. George Carlin actively discourages education. People think this is genius because they haven't read books. Right. If you've read a book on politics from a, a philosopher or even a, a political commentator, you can't possibly mistake what George Carlin is doing for some kind of genius insight. He doesn't make any arguments. He doesn't understand anything. He doesn't say anything. What are his ideas? Nothing. So that kind of comedy, I think, is useless. And a constructive comedy has to be aimed towards something. So you can criticize power, right? You can say, look, the billionaires are controlling everything. But you have to have something on the other end, which is like, they're, what are they scared of? You know, what should we be doing? You have to say, look, what would happen if we s- stood outside of Jeff Bezos? What would happen if we gave a guillotine as a president to uh, the warehouse workers of Amazon? Right. That could be sort of a joke. Like, what would happen if we that we all shipped guillotines to them? Mm. Well, the idea here isn't just that Bezos is a baddie and we hate him. It's that these people could literally do something about it, right? They could do something. The warehouse workers could organize. They could take power against him. Do you have any positive exemplars? Because I can think of so many exemplars in the mold of George Carlin. So before we came on, I mentioned Russell Brand, who you pointed out correctly has at least showed up in support of unions and stuff. But it's the same just reflexive anti-authoritarianism. And as soon as you sit either of them down in an interview and push them, you see they understand, like, absolutely nothing about actual... Yeah, which is funny why people think... I mean, I don't think people say it about Russell Brand, but again, yeah, people think George Carlin... Carlin was a smart comedian. People think Russell Brand's a genius. I like. I yeah. try to see the other point of view. I guess can't. people do. I don't know, but it's like these people don't read books. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I were to be unpleasant, I would say that genius doesn't just mean a little bit smarter than you, because yeah. that's a low bar for some people. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. As far as popular ones, I'm not really sure. There's a lot of people on the internet who are funny and who are political. What about like on Twitter? What's your feelings? Mine are sort of nuanced on, like, the John Stewart and the sort of generation of comedians that he birthed. So, like, John Oliver, Samantha Bee, yeah. all of these sorts of people. I on the, I mean, tell, tell me what you think, because I, I could sort of argue it both ways on yeah, those guys. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I sort of don't like any of them politically, I guess. They seem just like the... 
I mean, what are they supporting? You know, they seem to support this kind of nothing liberalism where we just shouldn't be as bad as the Republicans. But I don't think I think, again, they're pretty much servants to the elite. I mean, I mean, they want the structure to stay the same. But sort of thinking about uh, what I was just saying about uh, George Carlin, I mean, John Stewart knows what he's talking about, at least. Right. I mean, that, that's he understands what I was the say. world, you know what I mean? Yeah. He understands something. And like, he has a point of view, like it's this kind of liberalism, I don't know, like Hillary Clinton-style liberalism maybe he probably likes. Yeah. I don't really well, know. Maybe, maybe even like Bernie Sanders liberalism, but the guy isn't a communist. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. Right? Yeah, um, obviously not, yeah. Um, but you can sort of imagine a conversation between George Carlin and John Oliver, and George Carlin just rambling, and John Oliver doing yeah. the sort of polite British thing of like, okay, and... But, yeah. you know, this. Yeah, that's kind of the funny thing. People who think, yeah, Carlin is a genius. If he went on, if he sat down and did an hour interview with Jon Stewart about politics, they couldn't even make it an hour, I don't think. No. They would run out of things to say in 15 minutes because he's got nothing more than 15 minutes to say. Like, Jon Stewart could talk about anything for hours. Jon Stewart. He understands foreign policy and domestic policy pretty well, I think. It's like. So at least he potentially there could be a comedian like John Stewart, yeah, that that would have value. Do you do you not have any positive exemplars then of someone who is sufficiently radical for your taste? Uh, I mean, I just saw this movie by Boots Riley. What is that called? Uh, Thank you for calling. Or um, no, I know what you mean. It's I'm sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, not the. That that's some, about, something like that could be. Yeah, it's hard for those people to get funding though because it's hard to get funding. Hollywood is controlled by massive mega conglomerates mm. and they're perfectly okay with people like John Stewart who will make fun of the rich. Mm. Rich people have never minded comedy that makes fun of the rich, mm. you know, but someone like Boots Riley, who's actively, you know, trying to overthrow the rich, you know, and saying, Hey, let's take power ourselves. Uh, and the movie was about unions and stuff. And, you know, that kind of thing is like, are they really going to give, $50 million to make huge movies or give him a show on NBC? It's like, I don't think so. So your overall, as a, I mean, if we could call you a comedian, your overall prognosis of the state of political comedy, which a lot of people think is going through like a renaissance, is fairly bleak. You think like the George Carlins of the world are just sort of useless and worse than useless. And yeah. the like John Olivers or whatever are... Uh, at least know what they're talking about, but uh, insufficient in terms of a vision yeah. that they're putting forward. And like someone like Noam Chomsky might say, John Seward is there. The role he plays is to set the edge of what's allowed. So he is supposed to represent the left and the purpose of him. And he'll say stuff like this about the purpose of like the New York Times or whatever is to set the boundary of what we're allowed to talk about. So you can go to John Stewart. He's the left. He lampoons the right but no further, right? They set the boundary of what we're supposed to be able to to think about. And even the supposed radicals in this country aren't, like, we're supposed to be terrified of these socialists. And I don't, I've got my criticisms of someone like Bernie Sanders or um, uh, who, who's this um, young woman who's just won in New York. Uh, Cortez? Yeah, yeah, Cortez. Alexandria Cortez, yeah. Um, but, like... What they're calling for is not socialism in, like, any hardcore... No, they're talking about having universal health care and cheaper college yeah. and stuff like that. And that's, like, right at the limits of our conversation, you know? Yeah, it's... 
yeah, I'm pretty disappointed with Bernie Sanders. What are your feelings just, on him? He just doesn't seem to. I guess what his role should be is to really push to the left, and he seems to be just proposing things that are perfectly imaginable that Hillary Clinton would have proposed. Almost nothing that he proposed seemed to move the conversation. Like, I guess I would compare him very unfavorably to Jeremy Corbyn, who proposes things that are much, much different, where he'll propose things like, yeah, I mean, nationalize the railroads. Yeah. You'll never hear the word nationalize come out of Bernie Sanders' lips. Right. He'll never say the words. He'll never even propose it. And more like Jeremy Corbyn proposed that when businesses sell, that the, um, the workers should have right to first buy. Hmm. So they should have the workers will have to decline to buy the company before other capitalists can buy it. Hmm. And that the government should loan them the money. Right. This was something that he floated. Like, can you imagine Bernie Sanders saying that? That's like he's trying to say, look, in three or four generations, we'll have transformed the entire economy to worker co-ops. That's what he was proposing. Hmm. Bernie Sanders would never dare propose something like that. Or I don't even think think of it. I don't think that would even come into his. It's not like he's afraid to say it. I don't think he would think of it. Hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty disappointing. All they're really saying is, I mean, maybe that's all we can say. Maybe that's all we can do is say, look, let's try to get lined up with these European countries and Canada and have universal health care, at least take care of people. Have some kind of minimum wage that we can live on. Maybe that's all he can do, but I don't think so. I think he could propose a lot of other things and they wouldn't happen. You know, but they should be the conversation. Like, why, why should these companies be owned by anyone? Why shouldn't the workers just own the companies? You know what I mean? Why can't we say, hey, when Bezos dies, or at least have that as part right? of the economic it's, system? There's private ownership and collective right. ownership, and we'll, well, we'll have a hybrid. Like that would actually be my personal view. Actually, like right. we can but we can have an economy say, that has a mixture. Why can't we say when Bezos dies? His money just – the company that he built – or he, he didn't build it, obviously. But the company, why can't we just have the workers take it over? Right? That would be something that Jeremy Corbyn wrote. Bernie Sanders would say, let's tax him a little more. And that's it. that is his proposal. Let's tax him to pay for the welfare that we're subsidizing his workers. That's his radical proposal. It's like that's not going to change anything about – fundamentally about – I mean it will maybe – alleviate uh, the tax burden of the middle class a little bit or something, because now we'll take some money from him instead. It's like, that's not going to change anything about society, though. What I found really interesting about how heated and how nasty the primary between Clinton and Sanders got was that if I gave you just 10 bullet points of, like, their proposals and whatever, you'd actually really struggle to distinguish between them. Yeah. Right. You, you, they were the, almost identical. Like the yeah. framing, the rhetoric was different or whatever. And even with universal health care, I believe, I believe Hillary, when she says she ideally would like to do it. Yeah. But she didn't think it was politically viable. I mean, that's probably true. And that was Obama's position as well. Yeah. It's probably true that they would like to do it. Yeah. And so what's the real difference? She's basically saying, I don't think we can do it. And he's saying, I think we can. 
that's not an ideological difference, really. I mean, they do have ideological differences, but again, the policies... They're mild, and I felt people... Mild. And one of the big arguments they were having, which was mind-blowing to me in this primary, was that he wanted $15 hour minimum wage, and she wanted a $15 hour minimum wage, but only in New York City and maybe in Tennessee they would have $13. That was like a big sticking point. I'm like, this is an ideological sticking but, but point. Like, this is something for economists to work out. But like, what the optimal level for the minimum wage is? This is something I've, I can go into this one. I won't. But like, there is an optimal level within a capitalist economy, right? Because yeah. as you raise it, you increase um, aggregate demand. There's actually sort of collective action yeah, effect. But, but then, but then there is a limit. Like, you couldn't have a hundred dollar an hour minimum <laughs> wage. So there's a balance, and whether it's thirteen or fifteen is like that is. That is a technical, empirical question. This is something exactly. economists within the system can work out. Yeah, but economists just, should work out, not but politicians, that's, really. I sense. mean, the, what a politician could come along and do is say something like, how about we have um, a federally guaranteed right to a job or something? That, that's yeah. a bit more of a... Yeah, and Bernie Sanders would never said anything like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I interviewed someone running for Congress recently who was running on just that platform, and I... I thought that was a great platform, actually. Um, but just one final point on the 2016 primary is I thought both sides were kind of being, given that there was no essential policy differences, were being bizarre in that the, the Hillary Clinton people were saying, this is a crazy radical who can never win. Well, running on the same platform you are. But then the Bernie people, I'm sorry, and I know this is my side of the aisle, but we're being kind of stupid as well, going, this is someone who's just a corporatist Democrat who doesn't care about working people at all. Okay, who's running on the same platform as your guy is. So, like, yeah, if you're going to make... It, it, it comes down to whether... Like, you trust Bernie Sanders to fight... You know, it's like you can have certain platforms, but which ones are you going to prioritize? Right. And you don't trust Hillary Clinton at all to actually do any of this stuff. I mean, I do feel, though, like the whole trust thing was kind of a personality read that was in some ways being filtered through decades of right-wing smears and gender perceptions and so on. I'm not defending Hillary Clinton. I'm just saying I think some of what was said about her was somewhat unfair. Um, some some was yeah. far too fair, but sure. Um, yeah. Whereas Corb, so you you would be a Corbyn fan in the UK. I like Corbyn. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, if you draw the analogy there, because we can say honestly, the difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, there's an argument that at least where they were in 2016 was a difference of style and personality and presentation more than, like, an actual governing platform. Whereas if you compare Tony Blair to Jeremy Corbyn, it's obvious that the two men loathe each other personally. Yeah. And that they, they could be from complete... You'd be buggered to know they were even from the same political party. Yeah, they're basically from different political parties, honestly. It's a better fighting over a power struggle of this one party. I mean, they're, it's pretty clear that the Blair party and the Corbyn they call them different wings of the party. I mean, these are basically two different political parties. It's not like in the US where you can have a healthy internal debate about are we going to do yeah. Obamacare or Medicare for all. No, no, no. You have like a pro-business, vaguely socially liberal, maybe have a minimum wage sort of party and send yeah. in the troops and seize the railroads party. Like, yeah. that, like in some ways, 
I and think. we don't have that at all in America. So, so, so I think some people think Bernie Sanders is is the Corbyn party just all by himself. He's the party. He's the only guy, right? And maybe this is sort of true. And then the rest of the Democratic Party, ninety, the other forty nine senators or whatever, are all in Hillary's win. And that's sort of the situation we're kind of in. They are corporate Democrats. Mostly. Yeah, I think by the time we get to 2020 elections, you're going to see a few more people have put both feet in the Sanders camp. I think that's where that's headed, definitely. But what would you make of the critique of... I mean, how do we answer the election? I mean, I agree with you about Corbyn. Um, he's also just been quite flat-footed tactically, stuff like the anti-Semitic so-called scandal there. Um... And what would you make of the critique, though, that, like, we should be decimating this conservative government? They're just hopeless. They're useless. Nobody likes them. The whole Brexit thing is a farce. Why are we not, why are we not leading by 20 points in the polls? And I know the answer will be because the press is dead set against radicals, but, like, that is a, that is a fair critique of Corbyn, right? That we should be further ahead than we are right now. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with probably the press. I mean, who controls the press does not want uh, this kind of thing to get to get out. They don't want Jeremy Corbyn in charge because, yeah, one thing I like, like Noam Chomsky says also, he says one thing that people don't ask about the press, it's kind of a weird phrase, the press. He says, what is the press? Like, what literally are they? And people are like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, what they are is a massive corporation. There's no such thing as the press in some sense. There's massive, I mean, we're talking about in America, it's like the biggest corporations around are the ones who own the press. That's what they are. They're literally corporations, and they're going to do what's best for their bottom line in the immediate sense. In other words, like they're going to... promote stories that get views. So they like to just do any kind of strum up controversy just for controversy's sake. But they're also, they don't want to promote ideas that are going to be fundamentally hostile to their own existence. Right? Why would they? Of course, they'd be stupid too. So they're not going to favorably cover people who are anti-corporation, who think corporations, massive corporations, should just go away. So how do we solve this situation? I don't know. Which is generally a problem of conceptualization that corporations are a form of governance. They are a power structure. And, you you know, you want to ask the same things of that power structure as you would ask of other power structures. And when people say shrink the government, it's not just like that reverts to the people. That is a transference of power and economic power and political power to corporate power. And it's meaningful to ask... Is that a better system of governance? Can we think of other ways of doing it? And that that that, yeah, that and sort never gets aired, ever. Shrinking the government also, what you're talking about is reducing democracy. Because at least we have some de- democratic oversight. You can say, look, the whole government is run by these corporations anyway, right? They're all in their pockets. You can cynically say that. But at least we can theoretically vote these people out. That's democracy. When you're talking about shrinking the government and giving more power to corporations, you're talking about reducing democracy. That's the only, that should be the way it's phrased. You say, we don't want democracy in our press. Not freedom. We want a more free press. Ironically means we want a less democratic press. Right. We want no democratic oversight over who controls what's aired on TV. That should be the way it's phrased. 
we want no democracy mixing with our press. That, that Nobody phrases it like that. You'll never hear that said. It's like, that's what's happening. Though. We want only ownership, property relations to control, right? Uh, the press. It's never phrased like that, though. It's the free press. The free press means the guy with the dollar bills controls what's said. That's not, it actually means corporations are basically structurally like a dictatorship. The guy at the top commands everything. Right. Everybody has to obey them. And he's increasingly often there because his father was there or some shit like that. And they're kicked out of, yeah, exactly. It's almost like a monarchy. Right. So the guy who owns Fox News or the group of people, the small, the major shareholders and stuff, they control everything. It's a dictatorship. So when you're talking about the free press, as far as if corporations are the ones controlling everything, you're really talking about a, a, a dictatorship press. A few small people govern everything. That's not really what we call freedom. It's kind of ironic. Like everywhere we go, like if we're talking about foreign policy, like we're going to spread freedom overseas. That almost always means democracy. If a country is going to be more free, it means more democratic, right? Freedom is synonymous with democracy in American thought, like the way it's presented. In foreign policy, except in domestic. In foreign policy. Yeah. Suddenly, when you get to work, it's the absolute opposite. The more democratic it is, the less free it is. And how this dichotomy works is simple. They never say it. They never phrase it like that. Democratic workplaces are considered not the free market. Democratic news would be not the free press. It would be the opposite of the free press. And I'm not talking about government oversight. You can have other, you know, like this doesn't have to be the central government controlling the, because nobody really wants that either. But uh, you can have some kind of public, like PBS or something, you know, public news. It's publicly funded and not controlled by Washington, but democratic in some way at least have some democratic structures over what stories get covered, what shows get produced, what movies get made. Why can't we have some say in this? And it's really hard. I have friends who are trying to, like, launch their own media platforms and crowdsource it and so on. It's just tough. Like, fundraising, that sort of thing is just tough, you know? It's impossible, it seems. Yeah, I I don't know how to do it. I mean, I think there's people who are doing better and worse jobs of it, but it is just tough. I mean, I guess my own point of view on this is, I don't have both feet in the radical camp. Like, I do think there's a role for sort of quote-unquote free market or something. But I I would like to have more of a choice. Like, right now, the choice is like, work for one corporation or another. I don't mind if people want to form corporations and have that power structure and work with it that way. But if people want to work in a worker-owned collective... The, the options are vanishingly few and kind of mostly within, you know, uber-liberal, big-city, expensive type of, like, maybe there's a coffee shop here or there, you know what I mean? But if you're, like, yeah. in the middle of the country and you want to work in um, a worker-owned um, I don't know, agriculture or manufacturing or something, I don't really know that there's anything for you, right? Yeah, not that I would think. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, there's a lot of ways you can support it. If you like an episode, please do share it. It helps get the word out there. And if you're able to support it in a more monetary way, we have a Patreon account. 
I often suggest regular listeners help support the costs of the show with a suggested donation of $2 an episode. That's super easy to get set up. The links are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, or you can go to patreon.com stroke politicalphilosophypodcast. Also, just subscribe on a few different channels. The more subscribers we get, um, the better our stats look, and that helps get people on and gets us noticed. And any positive reviews on iTunes also much appreciated. And yeah, do just comment if you have any thoughts on this conversation or any of the others. Comment on social media, email me, direct message me. I do try and get back to most thoughtful responses that people send me, so please do. That's it for this week. Next week, like I say, I'll be talking about the intellectual dark web with uh, Corey, and I hope you'll join us again for that. Thanks again for listening. 